Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Blair. I'm the communications manager for Prison Yoga Project, and we are so excited this morning to have Dr. Sam Himmelstein with us. Thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And we are here to talk about youth addiction and cultivating emotional safety. And so before we begin, I would love to tell you about Dr. Sam and his work. Dr. Sam Himmelstein is a psychologist in California. He works with high risk and marginalized youth in juvenile justice system, foster care system, and those suffering from addiction issues. He's worked at the Chemical Dependency Program at Kaiser Permanente with teens and their families. He's worked in a number of juvenile halls conducting psychotherapy, psychological evaluations, and researching the benefit of mindfulness-based interventions with incarcerated and underserved youth populations. He's the founder and president of the Center for Adolescent Studies. Dr. Sam Himmelstein is passionate about training professionals from multiple disciplines in creating authentic healing relationships with adolescents that contribute to positive outcomes. He is formerly incarcerated youth himself and shares that he feels privileged to change his life from a path of drugs, violence, crime, and self-destruction to that of healing and transformation. His mission is to help young people become aware of the power of self-awareness and transformation and to train professionals with similar interests. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And will you lead us in a centering opportunity? Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. So I would just encourage everyone to find a, a comfortable sitting position if you're sitting. And I do like to invite folks to close their eyes, but you absolutely do not have to close your eyes if you don't want to. If you keep your eyes open, I just would invite you to have kind of a soft gaze in front of you. And we'll just do this for about four or five minutes. When you hear the sound of the bell, just start by taking a few breaths in and a few breaths out, and then just wait for further instructions. Breathing in and breathing out. I invite you to notice where it's easiest to sense your breath. Could be in the nostrils as you breathe in and breathe out or in the belly or ribs or chest, noticing the expansion and contraction as you breathe in and out. Wherever it's easiest, just let your awareness rest right there. Breathing in, aware that you're breathing in. Breathing out, aware that you're breathing out. You might notice after a few breaths in and a few breaths out that your mind begins to wander. You start to think of things other than the breath. 
that happens, that's okay. There's no need to think you're doing anything wrong or get frustrated or irritated. It's the nature of the mind to wander. When you notice the wandering mind, just gently and without judgment, without reactivity, return your awareness to your breathing, wherever it's easiest to sense the breath, the belly, the chest, the nostrils. Breathing in and breathing out. Awareness of the breath, the mind wanders away, and then you return your awareness to your breathing. That's the practice. Breathing in and breathing out. The mind may be calm right now, it could be serene, or it might be active or even jumbled or chaotic or anywhere in between. The goal isn't to have no thoughts or be completely calm and relaxed. Of course, if that's your experience, that's okay. to draw your awareness in to this present moment over and over again. Breathing in, aware that I'm breathing in. Breathing out, aware that I'm breathing out. The breath anchors us, it tethers us to the body to this present moment. Breathing in and breathing out. If you're not in briefly to do a body scan, if that feels okay, scanning through the feet and the lower legs, the upper legs, the torso, the core, the arms, shoulder, neck, head and face, and just do a brief checking with yourself. How am I feeling physically right now? Maybe it's energized, maybe it's exhausted or somewhere in between. Whatever it is you're feeling, that's okay. Just acknowledge it. Notice how you might be feeling emotionally. Maybe there's a big emotion or a subtle emotion Maybe you're feeling neutral. The mind, is it active? Is it calm? Again, no judgment either way. 
just meeting yourself fully in this moment, here and now. And as we wind this exercise down, I just want to invite you to set an intention for our call today. An intention to be open and receptive, to learn, but also an intention to share, to share your wisdom in our Q&A, to ask thoughtful questions, to engage and get the most you possibly can out of this call. Just set that intention in whatever way feels right to you. I invite you to take three slow breaths in and slow breaths out. And when you hear the sound of the bell, try and listen to the bell until you can't hear it any longer or until it's no longer there. You feel comfortable if your eyes were closed, you can slowly open them, expanding your awareness outside of the formal exercise, doing whatever you need to do to transition, stretch, readjust, sip your coffee, water, tea. Thank you so much. I always find it so valuable when we have the guest do a centering opportunity because I always hear and experience new things. Mm. And especially when we have a trauma-informed facilitator as well, like your invitation to feel the breath or bring the awareness of breath wherever you feel it. Mm -hmm felt very profound for me. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of was, it actually brought me to more of a sinus mm -hmm. area, or like an upper nose. Um, and so even just that cue, right? It's, it's, it's just so valuable. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate the, uh, the invitation to, to lead and, and kick us off today. And, you know, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but we usually start with a similar question. And how did you find mindfulness? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, the first thing that's coming to mind, and it, I think it relates to one of the other questions we were talking about, you were probably going to ask me at some point is, um, you know, I was in a lot of trouble as a kid and I was in and out of juvenile hall as a very young kid. Uh, and in many ways, there was a lot of privilege in that because I messed up before I went to high school. I was in and out of juvenile hall seven times and I was really struggling and suffering. And the reason why I said there's a lot of privilege in that is because, you know, I work with a lot of high school kids who are currently struggling. And when you struggle in high school, it really 
it really can set you up for a tough trajectory. Whereas for me, I had kind of turned it around by sophomore year in high school. So I had the opportunity to do well in school and after that and, you know, not not mess up my prospects for college, you know. Um, but I was living in a group home uh, my ninth grade year of high school. And it was after the last time I was in juvenile hall. And I have always been into martial arts, like my upbringing. I was one of those kids. I was into martial arts and there were positive aspects of that for me. There were negative aspects of that for me because I got into a lot of fights growing up. And um, but through martial arts, kind of that was like the doorstep to meditation. And I had read a couple of books where some martial arts teachers were talking about it. And when I was living in a group home out of state, um, for my ninth grade year, I was there for about 10 and a half months. One of my mentors, one of the counselors there uh, gave me this book, which was just really, and the book was written by a martial arts teacher, but it was all about meditation. And that was my introduction to meditation. It wasn't particularly mindfulness, but that's where I kind of got hooked into this idea that the mental world is something that you can train. And I was looking at it through more of like a discipline, commitment, martial arts lens at the time. And then, you know, long story short, I was like really lucky to be able to come home. Um, I was focused. You know, I had parents that never gave up on me. Rest in peace to my father. He passed away a couple of months ago. He never gave up on me. And um, I kind of continued to dabble in meditation in high school, struggled a little bit after I got back. By the time I got to college, I really started taking it seriously. And that's when I, I started with Zen meditation, then started with Vipassana shortly after that. And that was kind of my introduction into kind of serious mindfulness practice. And I started looking at it through my own practice. Like I said, I had been meditating and practicing as a young person, but not like a, like a daily practice or anything like that. It was when I was around 18 or so that I started serious practice and started really seeing the benefits of it through that. So that was my trajectory. And that's also one of the reasons why I was super passionate about teaching mindfulness and other self-awareness um, practices, the young people, because I knew they could do it because I did it, you know, um, and that's kind of, you know, the rest is history in terms of where it took me professionally. So seven times in and out, can you tell us if that's a common experience? Um, well, yeah, well, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. It depends, right? Like I, we, one of the things I forgot to put in my, uh, my biography is uh, along with running the Center for Adolescent Studies, I'm the co-founder of a company called Family Spring. And we, that's where we do our direct service work. So we teach like our mindfulness-based intervention. And we, do, we, have, we have, you know, licensed therapists that do therapy with young people. And we have a contract in the juvenile hall, actually the same juvenile hall I used to be incarcerated in. And um, like you go there and there's a lot of kids who are in and out of that system, you know. But the, like it's not uncommon for people to go once or twice too just because they, you know, for whatever reason, their circumstance has not had them kind of in that revolving door. Um, but it's certainly not uncommon to meet a young person that we've worked with, especially the youth with the most trauma, with who are coming from the most struggling circumstances um, to 
to be in and out there in in and out of there in their teen years and it's there's a lot of tragedy in that so so it's kind of you know answer i'm kind of like answering your question in multiple ways but it's like it can be uh common and it could also be uncommon it just kind of depends on how you're looking at it And, you know, not to be a dare lecture here, I, I'm I'm interested in, in our audience hearing maybe about some numbers as far as um, the cross-section of youth and addiction as well. Um, maybe just sharing some numbers of how many youth are struggling with addiction. Yeah, uh, I'm just searching my memory. I don't have that readily available. I believe... You know, the people, so I know that about 10% of the population uh, struggles with or, or meets the criteria for what would be known as needing intensive outpatient treatment. Wow. And so intensive outpatient treatment, think of like out, standard outpatient treatment, which is what we do at Family Spring is kind of like your once a week counseling or therapy, right? It's not the only way to do it, but it's kind of the standard in many ways, right? Intensive outpatient treatment is kind of like the last stop before somebody will go to like a residential treatment program. It's multiple days a week and uh, usually three or four days a week, multiple hours a day, right? So it's an intensive program. And about 10, per, 10 to 12%, I believe it is, I can find the research article because I was looking at this a few months ago, meet the criteria, both in adults and in youth. About 10% of the population meet the criteria, excuse me, 10% of the population who uses drugs, I should say, meet the um, the criteria for intensive outpatient. Now, are there people who use drugs that don't need IOP that could have a substance use disorder? Absolutely, so it's, it's bigger than that. So about 10% of the population uses drugs and about 10% of that 10% meets the population, meets the criteria for intensive outpatient. And all of those young people would definitely meet the criteria for what we would call, you know, an addictive disorder. Although the field is moving towards language of just instead of using the word addiction, we oftentimes just use the word substance use disorder now and categorize it as mild or, or moderate or severe and severe, moderate to severe would be kind of your, um, your, what people would traditionally say is addiction, if that makes sense. Um, so that's, that just gives you kind of a snapshot of the population. It's, it's a little bit rough, but, um, you know, cause like I said, you don't, just cause you don't meet criteria for intensive outpatient doesn't mean you're not struggling with substance use disorder in some way. So it's higher than that. Um, but, uh, you know, there was, there's some, and there's some conflicting research out there that in general, certain types of drug use is going down with young people and other types is going up. And the pandemic certainly exacerbated that, at least all, all signs in the research are pointing to that right now. Um, and to continue on that thread, will you talk to us maybe even in your own opinion of you know some of the root causes of addiction? Yeah. Um, 
the idea that uh, that like substance use disorder co-occurs with trauma is a big one right and a lot of people or let me back up and say you know there's kind of an old guard in the mental health and addiction world that years and years ago 30 years ago was kind of like mental health was over here substance use disorder and addiction is over here and they were very siloed both in the way that people can that, that professionals people like myself psychologists psychiatrists substance use professionals, both in the way that they were conceptualized and both in the way that they were treated as well. So 30 years ago, for example, it would not be uncommon for you to walk into a clinic and have a different therapist to work on a dick, to work on substance use disorder and another therapist to work on your quote unquote mental health issues, anxiety, depression, trauma, right? Now, today there is, and this is what the evidence suggests, and this is what best practice suggests, is that those those issues co-occur oftentimes in trauma, depending on how you define it, and especially if you broadly define it to not just post-traumatic stress disorder, but adverse childhood experiences and things like that. A lot of that influences the use of drugs and the use of um, uh, of not just recreational drug use, but that turning into what we would call severe substance use disorder or substance dependence. And that's kind of an extreme uh, situation where, you know, it could be something like I went through a really horrific experience and I want to find ways to cope with that. And drugs actually do a really good job at that. Um, uh, so that's why I use them. Right. But it can also be, uh, um, you know, a not so extreme uh, situation as well, where it may not be trauma, maybe other types of mental health challenges, social anxiety, for example, in adolescence drives a lot of people to use different types of drugs just to cope in social situations. So oftentimes it's not that somebody cannot uh, pick up, you know, a blunt and smoke some weed and just do it recreationally. And then over time, smoke more weed and over time, um, drink and use other drugs like that can happen. And that's what a lot of the, the propaganda media was pushing back in the day, like the gateway drug thing, which has pretty much been discounted by the research. But has that happened to some people on this planet? Probably. But the majority of people who really struggle with drugs, not just smoke weed or drink on the weekends if they're in college or something like that, but are using drugs and substances as a crutch. Uh, as some form of self-medication, the majority of those folks have something else going on. It could be anxiety. It could be depression. It could be social anxiety. It could even be ADHD. Um, or it could be something extreme like trauma, PTSD, something like that. So that's often what is driving. I would say I'm not, I don't like to speak in absolute terms. So I'm not going to say it drives all drug use, but it drives a majority of it for, for a lot of young people and a lot of adults as well. A lot of people in general. Thank you. And will you tell us maybe why youth might be more susceptible to substance use disorder? Yeah. I mean, they, you know, there's young people are developing rapidly. Their brains are not fully developed yet. Right. They're developing uh, both biologically through brain, through their body. They're developing socially. Right. And so peer pressure is a real thing and wanting to fit in is a real thing. And that should not be, you know, a lot. Of, I, I hear a lot of adults kind of discounting and invalidating that. 
And it's hard for folks to remember like who they were when they were an adolescent and, and what that felt like when, when somebody otherized you, even if it was subtle. And so that's a big reason why young people can be really susceptible to, to peer pressure and wanting, I mean, everybody is susceptible to peer and social pressure. It just depends on how much, you know, and maybe, maybe there's some adults that don't want to fully admit that, but the reality is, is that we all sign a social contract to be a certain way, at least within certain, you know, limits in the society. And that's amplified in many ways for young people, at least in those micro social situations. So that's one of the main drivers of why, like, for example, there's a lot of alcohol use with young adults in college or college age people, even if they're not in college. Um, it's because they want to fit in. It's because they want to feel good. It's because they want to feel a part of. Now, that's not the only reason. Right. But it's one of the reasons. And it's a big um, a big factor. Thank you. And I feel like that kind of just helps us lay the foundation for continuing to hear from you. Yeah. Um, so going back to you. So what was this journey to be able to do kind of full circle to go back and work with incarcerated youth or system impacted youth? Will you tell us about that journey? Yeah, I had a really good mentor, that group home I was telling y'all about in ninth grade. I had a really, really strong mentor, actually the director of that program. He befriended me in a professional way, of course, because he was the director and I was like one of the residents and mentored me and it had a really strong impact on me and really laid the foundation for my professional work years later. Um, I grew up boxing and doing martial arts. Like I was saying, he was a boxer like back in his early days, he was an older gentleman and he would wake me up in the morning at like five in the morning and take me to the boxing gym in the local area that we were living in. Um, and sometimes invite other youth, but he saw that I had like an interest in it. So it would just be me most of the time and we would go at it. And that is kind of just like a microcosm for the relationship that developed between us where he mentored me and, you know, I struggled at times, but in some ways he taught me, um, he wasn't like a formal therapist or anything like that. Although I think he did have like a degree in social work, but just through that relationship, that kind of set me on this trajectory to go home, go back to school. That was the last time I was ever out of home, whether it be incarcerated or a group home or something like that. And I focused, I got through high school. I knew that I wanted to study psychology in um, college. I didn't know I wanted to be a psychologist, but I just knew that was kind of the interest. Had some other strong mentors there. And I told one of my mentors, hey, you know, I'm really interested in meditation on the one hand and studying that in grad school. But I'm also really interested in like the prison industrial complex, more of like a social psychology thing. And he was like, just put them together and go to this one school. And I ended up going to this one school and the rest is history. I did my dissertation on meditation with incarcerated youth and got involved in a cool organization early on called the Mind Body Awareness Project. And just kept doing that work, you know, and found a lot of value in it. And um, and yeah, it was quite a trip to like 20 years later, walk back into the same institution that I used to be locked up in. And because, um, you know, the probation department, they have very, it's a civil service job and they have really good pensions. So people stay there a long time. So there was still staff there 20 years later that I remembered and a couple of them remembered me. Uh, because they were, you know, putting their work in to get their pension. So they were still employees there. 
And um, it was quite a trip to walk back in there and, and and do that work. And all that's to say, you know, I say all of that with a lot of awareness and knowledge of like, my situation was very unique in the juvenile hall. White kid, middle class, grew up in Berkeley. That's not what you're seeing most of the time in the juvenile hall. I grew up with some black and brown friends who, who didn't have it as easy as me in the system. And it was very clear. Like my very first class in social psychology was when I was 13 years old in that juvenile hall. And I saw firsthand how the judge treated me differently and with, with privilege, you know, uh, cause I was, you know, it felt like because I was white and because like my, my dad was there, he went to the court proceedings and stuff like that. And that, that is not a, a common experience, you know? So, um, at least in terms of like the number of people that are there and the percentage of people that are there. And I have friends, a dear friend that I grew up with who's in prison for the rest of his life. You know what I mean? And, you know, would his path be different? Like probably if, if, um, if the system wasn't as the system is, you know, they're changing and it's, it's moving in the right direction, but there's still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with big institutions and this is, uh, has so many threads into our different communities. Um, they're slow to change. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So you talked about this mentor and it brings up something that we had talked about previously, uh, relationship based mentality. Will mm-hmm. you talk about this framework when working with youth? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of our core values at Family Spring and really in the Center for Adolescent Studies is connection and relationship. And most of the evidence shows that, you know, in therapy, for example, but, in, but this kind of bleeds into like education and the types of programs that y'all run as well. Um, you know, the number one variable and somebody with the research shows the number one variable and what helps somebody change or grow, I like to say, uh, is their own internal motivation. But the second variable is the relationship that they have with their mentor, with their therapist, with their teacher. And the idea is that you're not kind of a siloed robot that goes in there with just a technique of mindfulness or a technique of yoga to um, to heal them or save them or something like that. It is a professional relationship, but you're still a human being and they're still a human being. And the beauty is kind of meeting in the middle and and getting to know them as a real human being. And at times even letting them get to know you as a real human being. Yes, there's boundaries again. Yes, it's a professional relationship, but that's an important aspect of the healing because what that can offer is on the one hand, what's called a relationally corrective experience. Sometimes it's called a emotionally corrective experience within the framework of a relationship. Somebody, for example, been through a lot of trauma, uh, has been manipulated by adults in their life. It's like, I can't trust anybody in this world. You meet your therapist or your, your teacher that you have for the next four years or something like that. And over time, that relationship, because you as a, as the mentor or the therapist or the teacher, because you show up in a consistent, predictable, authentic way over time, it can be a relationally corrective experience all of a sudden. And it could take some time for, you know, for some of these young people. Right. But all of a sudden over that time, they're like, I, there's, there's one person I can trust now. And that internal working model can be 
really, really valuable for the um, the betterment of their mental health and emotional well-being as they grow up into to be an adult, you know? Um, so on the one hand, there's that, which is arguably the, the more powerful aspect of a relational based framework. And then there's a very pragmatic other hand of it too, which is if you start to trust me, right? If you start to trust therapist Sam a little bit, then when I have something to offer you, mindfulness, yoga, whatever it is, some self-awareness practice, you trust me a little bit more. So you're a little bit more open to it. If you don't know me and I'm like, let's do this meditation thing. It's like, Ugh, who the hell are you? You know, I'm not doing that. But if it's like, oh, that's Sam. I trust him a little bit. Now I don't have to be in love with the idea of meditation or can't wait to do it. Right. But I might be even ambivalent about it, but I'll give it a shot because the person that's offering to it to me is trustworthy or I'm building trust with them. So it's a very pragmatic reason for why the relational based framework and connection as a core value is really, really important. And that's, that's the premise right there. That's the, any type of real work, in my opinion, and the research supports this as well. And certainly any type of trauma informed care at the direct service level when you're, when you're, um, working with people face-to-face, whether it's a group, one-on-one, whatever it is, the pyramid, the base of that pyramid is the relationship because what you're doing with the relationship is um, enhancing um, emotional safety. Mm. And when you are building psychological safety with somebody, that's another, that's kind of like a, like a, um, a therapeutic way to say building trust right? When somebody feels like they can trust you, they feel safe around you. They feel that that you're a predictable human being. I don't mean to say like you're boring, but just I don't have to walk on eggshells around you because um, because when you're unpredictable, it's chaotic. And one day you're going to react this way. Another day you're going to react another way. And, um, and I don't know who I can be around you, you know, but when you're predictable and consistent and authentic, that sends out, sends out a meta communication, you know, a subtext to the world vibrations around you. I'm going to be me authentically me. And I want you to be authentically you. And that's where that psychological safety starts to build. And that's where what we call trust starts to build. And that's, that's kind of the science and the art behind building rapport, building relationship. You know, it all comes back to us. How do we, the, the mentor, the adult, the therapist, the, um, the yoga teacher, how do we show up in the space? What vibration are we trying to emit? And that's why, as you, I know, you know, and a lot of the callers today are the participants, you know, it starts with self work with our own awareness. That's where everything else comes from. Thank you. And, you know, I think you talked about consistency as well. So like, you know, one way to create emotional and relational safety is to continually show up, right? Absolutely. Even just physically, right? Absolutely. You, you come to every class and you create a consistent rhythm. Um, and, then, and then what are these other pieces or like kind of foundations that you can create when you hold space and facilitate to cultivate emotional and relational safety? Can I just go back to one thing you just said real quick? Because I do think I just want to highlight how important that is. 
we at Family Spring, like I said, we have a contract with the juvenile hall up here locally, and we provide services with them, uh, intensive substance use-based services, anger management services, where we, we teach our mindfulness-based programs, do therapy, counseling, all of that, right? And um, one of the, they, they like us a lot there. And one of the re- the main reason it's like, do I think our therapists are the best ever? Like, of course I do, you know, but right. But, but the reality is, is one of the reason the institution and the young people like us and they talk about family spring is because we show up physically over and over again. And when you have a bunch, especially with where I know, um, as we talked about before, learning about your organization and learning about how it works, right? Like juvenile halls and prisons and incarcerated contexts, they have a lot of programs coming in all the time, right? I mean, relative, some prisons more, some prisons less, right? Depending on geography. And sometimes they're contracted entities like ours. And so there's a a contract to show up. Other times it's volunteer, but there's still like some form of an agreement. But there's a lot of times when people stop showing up or they're inconsistent and they take time off. And of course, everybody needs time off from time to time, right? But that inconsistency sends more subtext and more of a meta communication, both to the institution itself and to the young people. I don't know if this person is gonna show up today or I can't rely on them to show up today. And for us, and for, I know a lot of the people listening today and who are doing great work and who have good hearts, just knowing that if you show up, over and over again, when you say you're going to show up, if your class is Tuesdays at six o'clock, that's what you do. You know, with some, of course, things happen. You got to cancel sometimes, like, right? But we're just saying in, in general, you're showing up and you're not inconsistent. You might not get the pat on the back in real time, right? Like a young person or a prisoner might not be like, thank you for showing up every week. Sometimes it does happen, actually. But in general, it may not happen. But for the other program that is inconsistent, that isn't showing up all the time, that's not your program, you will hear about them a lot. You will hear talk them talk the 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 people in the prison or the institutional staff say they don't show up, they're inconsistent. So it's really one of those things that goes back to 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 just being present in relationship you and, and being authentic and being consistent it makes such a big difference for your rapport building because it helps them start to rely on you to show up and that is the beginning of trust that is the beginning of predictability it's like this person said they're going to show up or this or this organization or program says they're going to show up every day every tuesday at six o'clock and they're pretty much doing it now i can start to rely on that and now i can even if i have a background of trauma where i can't trust anyone this is the one thing that starts to stay consistent in my life in the one relationship that's different than any relationship i've ever had it's not a mother or a father or uncle or a family member uh where there may be a lot of a lot of you know skeletons in the closet with those types of relationships if there's a lot of trauma you know um that's how you start to build that predictability and that's where rapport that's where relationship comes from and i just didn't want to pass over your example of like showing up physically because it's super important and um you know it's a good thing to ask yourself as a um it's a good thing to ask yourself as like, let's say you're a volunteer and you're volunteering for the prison yoga project and you commit to a certain amount of time. It's like, can I do this? 
again, within reason, right? Like something happens, your car breaks down, like everybody understands that. We're just talking about like, if it's Tuesday at six and you're like, ah, I don't really feel like it, you know, then that's when it's like, okay, maybe, maybe you shouldn't put yourself in that position because that can create harm. And the first rule in, in our ethics codes as psychologists, at least is to do no harm, you know? So anyways, I'm sorry to, to go back to that, but, uh, um, no, happy to, happy to go wherever it was next. You wanted to take the conversation and, and no, sorry. And just thank you again for just reiterating the consistency because, you know, um, I hear all of the triggers and narratives it might bring up for participants and people as well. Uh, abandonment issues. Absolutely. Um, uh, oh, another person that didn't believe in me, I'm a failure, right? All of these things that can continue when you don't consistently show up in people's lives, when you made a commitment to be there. Right. So again, we were just, you know, chatting about the foundational pieces about creating emotional safety. And again, consistency just really seems to be this big piece. Um, And then what, what are some other factors or skills that we can cultivate to create safety in our participants? Yeah, great question. Um, Two come to mind that are like low hanging fruit. One uh, that the, the phrase I picked, the, the phrase and the practice I picked up from Thich Nhat Hanh, although I've never, you know, met him or anything like that. And I've, I've read a bunch of his stuff and consider him a teacher. Deep listening as a practice mm-hmm. is really important. Um, deep listening is the practice of, it's kind of like the mindful listening practice, right? It's like being present here now and letting the other or others share what they need to share, share their story. And when that's happening pragmatically, maybe I have some awareness on my body just to tether me to the present moment. But most of my awareness is on what they're sharing. It's on their content. It's on their story. And I'm not in a place of, for example, if uh, a like a, 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 a man or a woman or whoever, or a young person is sharing their story and, and it's like, um, I don't go into solutions focus mode in my mind, right? There's a time and a place for solutions focus mode and hint, it's usually when they ask for that, right? Directly. But in general, especially when you first meet people, they, they're assessing just like anybody else would your level of ability to be present to them and to, and to meet them as a human being. Uh, or to kind of pass over that, whether they're doing it consciously or subconsciously, that's another question. But so deep listening is like you're really meeting that person in that moment. You're 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 physically, you're emotionally, mentally listening. You're present in your body so that you can be present to them. You're not in solutions focused mode. Um, and Thich Nhat Hanh talks about how that in and of itself can have a healing impact and, 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 and be the doorstep for compassion. If you're, if you listen to somebody, for example, um, you have a more of a chance to, to take their perspective as opposed to not listening to them, right? Just to keep it super basic. And when you take their perspective, there's more of a chance to feel empathy, you know? That's kind of the emotional side of it, right? The emotional perspective taking. And when you feel empathy for somebody, when you can at least attempt to put yourself in their shoes and hear about and consider their trauma, their suffering, that's the doorstep for compassion. You know, I see your suffering. I want it to reduce. 
And all of that can come from the practice of deep listening. And that's something that oftentimes can be felt from the other person. You know, they said, I remember I had a guy once come in, he was, um, he was mandated to go to therapy for one session and he called me and he told me his whole story. I won't get into it now, but he basically was like, I don't need therapy. You know, Uh, I just am coming for one session. And so he comes in, uh, he starts to tell me his story. He, he starts to break down. He cries. All I do for that whole 45 minutes is just listen. You know, of course, I'm doing some reflective listening too, letting him know I'm here. I'm with you. Right. But mainly I'm just practicing deep listening. And what does he say to me at the end of the 45 minutes? Some of you have probably heard this before too. He says, Sam, I like your vibes. I like your vibrations. And what does that mean? That means uh, I feel safe around you. I'm not feeling judged right now. I'm not feeling like you're overanalyzing me, which is what I thought therapy was, you know? Um, and then he signs up. He was only, he was only um, uh, mandated from one session and he signs up for a number of sessions after that. All of that is, come, is standing on the shoulders of deep listening, right? And deep listening is this practice where we're in the moment. We're not in the, the problem solving side of our brain. We're just really there for them. And like I said, especially with young people, um, they don't get listened to a lot in this culture, in this society. We kind of write them off as adults. So when you do that with young people and when you're intentional with it, not only are you offering a relationally corrective experience, an emotionally corrective experience, but you're offering a socio-culturally corrective experience too, because finally there's an adult that's giving them the time of day to let them tell their story. And it's a very simple thing, but it's a very powerful intervention as well. And all of you have done it before. There's natural times where you practice deep listening. And all I'm suggesting is that you bring more intention behind it. When you bring more intention behind it, you can activate it in real time more. And that's one of those things that can be felt, you know? So that that's a big one, deep listening that I rely on a lot. I train therapists who have PhDs in that and they're like listening. Yeah, of course. And I'm like, yeah, but We're talking about intentional activation, conscious awareness. And when you start to bring the relationship into conscious awareness, you start to be able to interact with it as an entity more, you know, and you start to be able to be more skillful in it and to and to think a little bit more skillfully and clearly and and intentionally rather than passively, rather than being you know, thinking about things that happen and what can I do after the fact, you know, it takes some time to get there, but, but that's one of the main things. And then another thing I'll just talk about this really briefly is, um, you know, deep listening is kind of like a receptive receiving practice, right? You're listening to the other person. The other side of that coin is an offering practice. Uh, and that's what I like to call skillful self-disclosure. Now, there's a lot that's kind of a hot topic in therapy because it can be a little controversial. I'm not necessarily saying tell somebody your life story if they didn't ask you that. Right. But I'm saying there's ways in which you can show them your human beingness that will help them trust you more. And, you know, regardless of whether you're bought into that or not. We're always self-disclosing. If you go in, the clothes you wear, the way you talk, if you have tattoos, if you wear a a wedding ring on your finger, you're sharing things about yourself. And skillful self-disclosure is a way to clarify that story that's being created about you so that you can clarify and position yourself as a human being 
yes, a professional human being, a yoga teacher, teacher, a mentor, a therapist, an educator, but you're clarifying that story by doing that. And um, the word skillful is the most important part of that. It's I only share things about myself or my experience that are in the best interest of the young person or the client or the person that I'm working with. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for to add value to the relationship. That's that's what it's about. And it may it may not be my life story. It may not be like, oh, yeah, I was incarcerated, too. I've had so many young people that I've worked with a number, a high percentage of them. I've told them I've been incarcerated almost equally high percentage of them. I haven't told them I've, I've been incarcerated because I didn't think it was going to bring value to that particular relationship. Sometimes the most powerful self-disclosure is to share how you're feeling in the moment. I'm feeling compassion towards you. I'm feeling empathy towards you or whatever, or it could even be, I'm feeling frustrated right now because nobody in the class is listening or whatever, right? As long as you can do that skillfully, that can sometimes be the most powerful aspects of self-disclosure. So deep listening, a receptive practice, skillful self-disclosure and offering practice. And that was like a super fast crash course. I can send some more resources, uh, some free resources that we have at the Center for Adolescent Studies to you that you can share with your members um, that they can access where we go a little bit deeper into those things. We would love that. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I think I'm going to, we could be here all day. I, I love hearing you share about your lived experience and your knowledge and just really just practical school uh, skills of working with youth as well. But um, I'm going to tie in two more questions. And then okay. if our community uh, is starting to have some questions, feel free to drop those into the Q&A. Um, so if you look at the Zoom screen, there's a black bar at the bottom, a little Q&A box, and you can drop your questions in there and we'll get to them shortly. Um, so the next piece that I wanted to tie in here is we talk about bringing a trauma-informed lens to facilitating and why that's important, um, especially working with youth. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, it's important just because, I mean, it's, it's trauma is an epidemic, you know, there's, uh, it's, it's really a public health issue, you know, and, um, the, if you look up the statistics on PTSD is it's, it's not that high in terms of like the population, especially with young people, but the, um, the small box that the diagnosis of PTSD represents does not represent the very, the much larger box of experiencing trauma and all of the things that come with that, especially with young people. One quick resource, I'll just, I'll just name drop it real quick. If you haven't heard of the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences, I highly recommend looking that up, looking at the original study and starting there, which was in the mid nineties, and then looking at the timeline of research that has come since then, right? And so for example, example, an adverse childhood experience is something like, you know, witnessing domestic violence, your your parents or caregivers separating, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, things like that. And there's 10 of them. I'm not going to name all of them right now. But what the original research found was that if you have four adverse childhood experiences, uh, four of those 10 before the age of 18, it, the conceptual model was it it's essentially leads to an earlier death in life. I don't know if the research supported that, but over time, what the research for sure supported was a, a plethora 
of mental, emotional, and physical issues later in life. I think it supported the conceptual map of earlier death. I just don't know off the top of my head, but what it for sure supported was higher rate of depression, higher rate of alcoholism, higher rate of, uh, you know, other risky behaviors like multiple sexual partners with unprotected, you, you know, unprotected sex leading to other, you know, physical issues, higher rate of cardiac arrest, things like that, diabetes. So since that original research, for example, there was, a, there, you know, there's one study in 2014 specifically with incarcerated youth that showed that incarcerated youth were four times more likely than the general population to have four or more ACEs. Right. So basically, this is a long winded, a long form of saying the reason why it's so important to have a trauma informed lens is because. Many more people than we often think are impacted by trauma. Not everybody or not a high percentage might fit the criteria for PTSD. There's a whole rabbit hole I could go down with in terms of why PTSD is too conforming. And there's a lot of pioneers and researchers who are trying to think about it in other terms, complex trauma, developmental trauma disorder, things like that. Right. But uh, there's a lot of young people who have been impacted by adverse childhood experiences in some way or another. And so having a trauma informed lens doesn't mean I'm going to assume everybody I've worked with experiences trauma, but it it leaves room. Possibly could this person, because they're presenting super aggressive in this yoga class, possibly could that be coming from trauma? That's the question I'm asking myself. It's not assuming or overanalyzing them or anything like that. And then when I think about it that way, possibly is is this a possible reason for it? Now it's opened me opening me up to be more skillful and practice different interventions, both with myself and with that person in the yoga class. Now I'm thinking to myself, I shouldn't take this personally. This isn't about me when they're being super disruptive in the yoga class, you know? And if I don't take this personally and I step outside of the bounds of my ego, how do I wanna meet this person right now? Their defense mechanism, their protective mechanism, what we would call in the trauma world, a traumatic adaptation, the psychological slash behavioral conditioning that results for me subconsciously often protecting myself against the trauma, right? Uh, which could be, you know, aggressive behavior. Let's just go with that one, right? If that's coming from there, and it's an if, right? But most likely they're protecting themselves psychologically in some way. I don't need to make this about myself. And when I don't, when I do make it about myself, I run into a lot of other problems. Person, what I like to call therapist or, or teacher or person made resistance, you know, because, because I get loud or my authority strings get struck. And now it's like, you need to listen to me because I'm an adult or whatever, right? A whole bunch of other issues come from that. But when I take the other road and when I don't make it about myself, am I perfect? And is it going to lead to a, um, you know, a great result every time? Of course not, because we're human beings, but I'm going to be much more skillful in my approach or at least have the possibility to do that with training. And, um, and that is going to continuously lead us down that relational path, which oftentimes aligns with better results and better outcomes. So that's really the, the, the main reason it, it all comes back to that relational frame. If you do have a trauma informed lens, you're going to open it up in that relational frame a lot more. Cause if you don't, then you're going to probably take things a lot more personal and, and, and interpret things in ways that uh, would be unskillful. 
and and miss opportunities to help young people learn about themselves because that defense mechanism that they're employing yeah i can just think oh this is terrible i need to get past this so that we can then do the yoga class or do the learning right but if i take the framework of this is how this person protects themselves and maybe i'm not going to enlighten them about this right now in this moment but what if over the course of our relationship they developed insight into the way that they protect themselves so they can ask themselves the question, do I want to activate this defense mechanism right now? Does it serve me in this situation or does it not serve me in this situation? A very high form of awareness, you know? So you miss that opportunity if you just interpret it as bad or negative or try to eliminate it. And so that's why, again, um, again, long-winded form way of saying this, but that's why the trauma-informed lens can be super powerful, particularly if you're doing stuff like we do at Family Spring, mindfulness-based classes, and what you do at the Prison Yoga Project, yoga and awareness classes, particularly if you're trying to develop self-awareness and insight. Which leads us perfectly into the last question that I had as well. Why is mindfulness beneficial for working with youth? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's just piggybacking on what we were just talking about. It's the idea that, you know, so I'll, I'll say briefly, like if I teach somebody mindful breathing, could that be helpful for them from a regulation perspective? Of course it can. It could help them regulate their anger. It could help them regulate their um, anxiety, whatever. Right. And that's very real. But I think the the main reason, the primary reason and really the relational reason is it can help them develop awareness and insight about the self, about the question of who am I? How do I show up in this moment? And the fact that there is a talking voice inside of my brain, inside of my head, the, we call it the mind, right? The fact that I can start to pay attention to that and maybe even start to talk back to it sometimes or learn about it, that is probably the biggest value because then what we're doing is we're setting them up to be inquisitive about themselves, develop more self-awareness and ultimately develop more autonomy of, uh, and, and answering the question, how do I want to show up in this moment? Who do I want to be in this moment? Who am I? You know, that's the, that's for me, the main value of mindfulness. But of course, self-regulation is a big piece of what we push in our programs. Um, and that's a big piece of it too, because it can help young people stay out of trouble, especially the youth I work with who are literally in life and death situations. Sometimes um, it can help them make a decision with a slightly clearer mind that could be the difference between life, death, life in prison, things like that, you know? So of course, that's a very real aspect of it as well. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. And just to invite our audience, if you have any questions, you're welcome to drop that into the question and answer box now. Um, I mean, I can also keep asking questions, so this is great. Um, will you maybe share a, a profound experience that you had when you were working with uh, incarcerated or system-impacted youth? Yes. Um... The first thing that comes to mind was a story through one of my co-facilitators um, when I was working at the Mind Body Awareness Project. We were introducing compassion, metta, 
And uh, we did a very, like, we did a very simple meditation with these young people. Uh, they were in a maximum security unit. All of them were going to prison for a very long time after their juvenile hall stay. Um, and if I remember correctly, it was, we had them do a meditation, close their eyes. And we said, a very simple compassion meditation, right? Like not too nuanced, not too advanced. We said, you know, um, you know, may I be, say, say to yourself, uh, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be safe. We just had them kind of repeat that a few times, right? And then after all of our meditation, we'll process with them, of course. What was that like for you? Let's talk about it, right? So one of the gentlemen um, in the group, I, I remember his face, I remember his name, and he was going to prison for a real long time afterwards because of the, the severity of the crime he had committed. He, um, he kind of like jolted out of the meditation. And so as facilitators, we were like, what was going on? What, what came up for you? And he looked at us and this is what I won't forget. He said, I had a vision when I did that. When I said to myself, may I be happy? I had a vision of myself, two years old, three years old. I was on the floor in my apartment building and I was playing with my blocks. And then he said, when I said to myself, may I be healthy? I was 13 years old when I first started smoking weed and I imagined myself, I had a vision of myself when they handed me the joint, I took the joint and I threw it in the garbage. And then he said, when I said to myself, may I be safe? I was 16. I was right where I was right before I committed my crime and I could feel my gun in my belt. And I took my gun and I threw it in the garbage and I ran in the other direction. And then he was like, that was my vision. And in the group, we we're all like, holy shnikes. You know, it was very, everybody was locked in. It was super intense. And he was like the way he was describing it, like he for real had a vision. And it really just speaks to the power sometimes of compassion and the power of the, of the mind, the power of mindfulness, the power of, of visioning, you know? And um, yeah, he was going to prison for about 10 years after his stay in the juvenile hall, but he was going to go to prison when he was 18 and he's going to get out when he's 28. So he's got a lot of life to live after that. And the fact that that plant, that seed was planted for him there, that he had that vision and he could reflect on that vision in prison and maybe do some other self growth. I mean, the sky's the limit when he gets out, you know, the sky's the limit. So it was super profound, super profound experience, very transformative. The power of, doing this work sometimes shows up in those moments. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. So in some of um, other and separate work that I do, um, that sounded like he did a soul retrieval on himself. Mm -hmm. Like he went back and the pieces that went into hiding and the pieces that were too hard to face, he, he, he brought them back in. Mm. For sure. I don't know too much about that practice, but it feels like that. I love that term, you know? <laughs> wow. We've got a question in here. So this is great. Thank you for sharing that again. Absolutely. Yeah. My pleasure. 
Ben says, can you share more about your experience of privilege with judges you mentioned and how you think a change could be made for more equity in the legal process? Great question. Yeah, I mean, just to just to state it bluntly, I think the system was and continues to be a racist justice system. And as a white kid, that was the privilege right there and everything that kind of came with it. Um, how can it change? And I, and I do think there are things happening to do that. You know, I'm embarrassed to say, but like, um, I didn't know until maybe it was like five or seven years ago, well into my adult, adult years after, you know, after being in my early thirties that like the district attorney in your County is an elected official, right? Like somebody you vote on in the ballot. And that is, you know, I I don't want to get into like a super political conversation about like voting for the president, which sometimes can feel like, is this even doing anything? That's my personal experience. But voting for your local county district attorney, you can actually see progress that way. Because the district attorney, if you think about this justice system, right, it's the district attorney who's representing the public, the welfare of the public and the people. And then there's the lawyer, the attorney, whether it be a private attorney, whether it be a public defender representing the person who has committed the crime, right? And they're both talking to the judge, you know, and the judge and the district attorney work in the same office they're all in the same building public defenders too right but it it oftentimes feels like the the line between the district attorney and the judge is a little bit more receptive than the other side and i don't have any evidence to support that so don't hold me to that but it just it feels that way from my personal experiences and i've i've testified as a psycho an adult psychologist in some pretty extreme cases as well so it feels that way but so depending on who that district attorney is and what their ideology is, are they a lock them up and throw away the key type of person? Are they um, do they believe in restorative justice? You know, do they believe in like therapy? <laughs> you know, do they believe in intervention in some way? Like those are big questions, you know, and, and, and big answers. And and. And therein lies the inherent difficulty of them being elected officials. Like essentially they're politicians, you know? So it's like they have a whole campaign. And we just went through this in Alameda County where I'm at, where it's like there's a whole campaign around um, who they are. And yes, today in this current climate, it's yes, I'm progressive and uh, mental health is important and healing trauma is important and restorative justice is important. And okay, now you're elected. So now we'll see if that's true. But as opposed to the mid nineties, where, when I was getting locked up, um, you know, and, and this kind of answers that question at the beginning, like, was it common for me to, for someone to get locked up a lot? I want to revise my answer a little bit and say, actually, when I think about it in time, Back then, it was very common. Why? Because in the mid 90s, they were locking people up and throwing away the key. I mean, three of the times that I went to juvenile hall as a kid in the mid 90s, I would have not even, nobody, regardless of race, at least in my current county right now, would have went to juvenile hall for those things because they were so minor. But the climate back then, because of who the district attorney was and what they were pushing, was 
you know, it was just like lock them up and throw away the key. And the juvenile hall was overpopulated a lot. Right. So I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but district attorneys who you elect, like pay attention to that when those ballots come up, because they're the ones who are um, pushing. They're the ones who are literally saying, should this person be released or not? The public defender and the attorney is fighting for what's good for their client. Uh, and the judge is ultimately making the decision, but the attorney is making the case for for the for the the public safety of the community. The district attorney, I should say. So, um, so putting thought into that and actually reading those profiles and thinking about does this person align with my core values? You know, um, that's one way where where and that's the thing that comes up the most for me. And I'm passionate about that because as a psychologist, it's like. I work in a direct service provider. I work oftentimes with people in their inner worlds, right? So like, I don't have a lot of experience professionally advocating for people. Um, so when I get opportunities to advocate um, on the behalf of the community and what I think is good for it based on my knowledge and expertise, that's where I do it, right? Like, okay, I can vote, I can educate myself about this and then actually go out and vote for the district attorney. So that's a big one. That's a big one that I, that I, you know, keep refraining to and love to educate people on where whatever county you're in, look up who is the presiding district attorney and learn about them. And then when that election cycle comes along it's like if they're a lock them up and throw away the key type of person if they don't have uh i remember one time i'll share this quick story and then we can go to another question but this just to give you an example of this right one time when i was working full-time in the juvenile hall before i was in my current position i was working for the behavioral health clinic and we um invited the district attorney down to speak to us and at the time uh, this was before 2016. At the time, there was something called an adult remand. There still is in the, in, in, the, in the juvenile justice system. And that basically means if somebody commits a crime to a certain level, if it's that intense, the district attorney will remand them as an adult, basically charge them as an adult. For example, that kid I was telling you about with the compassion experience, they got locked up. You have to go to court within 70, 48 or 72 hours of getting locked up. And at that time, the district attorney had the power to remand them as adult. You're being charged as an adult, which basically means you're being charged as an adult. So you're gonna go to prison after you finish when you turn 18, after you're done with being in juvenile hall, and you're gonna basically get charged to the level that, that an adult would get charged, right? And so anyways, one time we invited the district attorney down and we said, do you, can you share with us your criteria for remanding kids as an adults? Because I would, as a therapist, I'd have one kid who um, has been in juvenile hall six times, has committed four robberies and they didn't get charged as an adult. I had another kid who first time in juvenile hall uh, committed a robbery and they're charged as an adult and they're going to prison after this. And there was no, we tried to look at it from every angle. What What is the method behind this madness? And we suspected th certain things. Anyways, we invite the guy down. He comes to talk to us. We're like, basically the whole clinic is like, what's your criteria? How do you do this? Because there's all these discrepancies. And he was just like, well, it's just kind of a gut feeling. And I was like, what the, what the F, you know? Like he was like, if they're 15 
if they're over 15 and it's a murder, it's going to be an adult. But after that, it's kind of like a gut feeling. We're like, wow. So this is the thing, right? That's the time. Now, now, all of that, all of that, just, just to let everybody know here in California, at least, all of that was happening and that um, had a lot of advocacy groups up in arms, obviously, because it was happening all over the place. And we passed a proposition in 2016. I think it was Prop 58. I can't remember the number, but basically to say the district attorney should not have the power to just remand somebody. The power should lie with the judge after they go through what's called a 707B hearing, which is both sides can, if the district attorney wants to remand somebody as an adult, they can present their side, but then the, the, um, the, the defender gets to present their side as well. And then the judge will make a decision, which is still problematic in some ways, but it's better than just the district attorney being able to have the power to just decide off of a gut feeling, you know? And so again, going back to this thing of like, you know, we 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 have to change i do believe we have to change the system from the inside out but electing officials who are in these very powerful positions and learning about their policies is very very important and whenever there is a high profile tragic crime in any community in any county um there's pressure on all sides from that elected official to make decisions that can impact policy for years to come so I'm rambling, but I'll leave it at that for now. You know? No, I don't think it was a ramble at all. I think it was really important for us to hear. And just it's a, again, it's another empowering opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can go and meet with these people, especially when they're running for a position and you they're public can, officials. Yeah, you can you can meet with them. You can ask them uh, what is their what is your view of justice? Uh, do you align with restorative justice, transformative justice? Can you give me examples of opportunities and times that you've leaned on transformative justice? There are organizations around you doing this work. So, yes, again, thank you for encouraging people um, to see what's happening in their communities. Right. Yeah. Um, we got a couple more questions coming in, which is, which is right. great. Um, Jennifer asks, was there a catalyst in overcoming bitterness? What had the most impact on you in coming out from under the impre- under the oppression of incarceration? There was not a catalyst to overcome bitterness only because I didn't experience that. I think I knew from a young age, um, you know, the, the, like being locked up in and of itself can be a traumatic experience. Uh, there were certain aspects of it for me that could qualify as a traumatic experience, but I didn't do enough time. I mean, probably the longest I was in there for out of those seven times, like maybe two months, which as a 13 year old, it felt like two years, of course, I don't want to belittle that experience. But, um, you know, I think for better or worse, this might have been a little bit of like invalidating my own experience. But like I said, when I started going in and out, I was like seeing the social stuff. Like there were times where I was the only white kid there and I was like, this is messed up. Not not for my experience, but just like seeing the social, like how many young people of color, particularly at that time, young black kids were in jail. And so 
I, there was something about that. Again, maybe maybe it, I kind of unskillfully minimized my experience at the time, but it also helped me just see what was happening. And so it was like I would get out and I was like, I even though I didn't have like the professional language, the adult language to think about it, there was that sense of like, I know I'm getting treated different here mm-hmm. and that's wrong, you know? And so maybe some bitterness towards that like towards that, the system, but not, um, not towards my personal experience in the hall, because when I got out, it didn't, it didn't stick like that. You know, um, there was a second part of that question too, that I forgot. What was the second part of that question? What had the most impact on you in coming out from under the oppression of incarceration? Right, right, right. So yeah. So the bitterness and the kind of like impression of incarceration, I just kind of, I just kind of shared about that. Um, but in terms of impact, what I can share about is in terms of impact on me personally, turning my life around, the biggest impact, again, going back to relationship, parents never gave up on me. That's huge. I mean, parents, I hate to say this out loud, but sometimes parents give up on their kids. It's really sad to see. I've been to, I've done thousands of hours of family therapy sessions and I've heard some, some stuff that is really sad, you know, and my parents never gave up on me. Relationship, really important, right? The relationship with um, the mentor from that last group home I stayed at, he took an interest in me enough to to mentor me, to to show me the ropes and boxing, to to have, you know, kind of man man to young man conversations and help me figure out who I am. So that was probably the biggest impact on me. And again, that opened me up to other relationships, which ultimately opened me up to the awareness practices as well. Mm. Um, but I remember, I remember where I was when I was like, I got to make some changes as like a 14 year old, 15 year old. And like, I had never had those thoughts to even think that was so much progress for me. And it was a result of like, the relationships around us, I look at them as mirrors, you know, good, good, healthy relationships act as mirrors to help me learn about myself, you know? And so that definitely had the biggest impact on me starting to shift the trajectories, you know? And of course the container of all the privilege we've been talking about allowed for that to happen, which, which, um, you know, cause I've known people in my world, like one of my dear friends who's in prison for the rest of his life, he had some positive relationships too, but he didn't have the container of that privilege to allow him to move in some of those directions. Um, and of course, you know, there's personal responsibility too. there. He made some choices, but, but still, you know, w- without, you know, all things withstanding, um, that's probably those, those are the things that, you know, helped me turn it around, so to speak. Thank you. Yeah. And this will be our last question. Sure. Joe asks, do you have any thoughts on how we can help youth maintain positive habits and make positive connections once they leave corrections programs? It seems that we throw them back into conditions that led them to trouble without the level of support they need for success. Yes. Um, Great question. So the pragmatic answer to that kind of like on a structural level is to make sure those programs exist 
where they're going back, right? So if your program is just on the inside, that's a good thing that you're providing services, right? But they do have to go back to the belly of the beast, so to speak, right? We're like, we're like, they sometimes jail is as messed up as it sounds can be a break for them. I mean, it can be traumatic. But I, I remember one time I met a kid, he was like, I was like, ah, must must be tough being in the hall. And he was like, Nope, I'm not going to get shot in here. And I was like, Ooh, that was a learning experience for me as a facilitator, you know? And so, so, and we did a lot of great work and he was able to think, but it's like, ultimately he had to go back to the belly of the beast, the neighborhood that he was from. And so, um, so structurally the answer to that is like, do these programs exist out there? The things you're teaching them, the positive habits, the healthy connections, all of those things, the yoga, the mindfulness, the, the, um, learning to, positive self-talk, um, addressing self-limiting beliefs, all of these things, do they exist? And if they don't exist, where, what programs, what can be done to help programs exist in their communities, you know? Um, and then it's also just the, um, the transference of the relationship, you know, it's like, and I don't mean to put too much on people, but is there an aspect of your programming that can traverse back to the community, maybe physically, maybe not physically, but can the relationship continue in some way? Is there someone they can call when they need to talk? I mean, maybe that's outside of the scope of your program, right? And if it is, that's okay. But again, if that's the case, it's like trying to connect them with the program that exists in their community and that they oftentimes do, it's rare when they don't, that can be part of the work too. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to be like you finish the meditation or the yoga class and like it's that that's it. It's like the last class could be being like, let's sit down and figure this out. You know, let's let's come up with a plan. Um, if you if your own program doesn't have that, then that's it's hard to say that that's the next best thing. But but it's something that should be done. There should be some case management to to help connect them, you know, and better yet, if there is a program in their community, if they could start coming in to the institution before they get out and build that relationship. And then you as the provider in your program could bring that person in and do what we would call like a warm handoff where the three of you or you and the other organization and the individual are meeting a few times to build that rapport, build that relationship. And now that young person, when they leave the correctional setting, they don't have to go to, you know, um, you know, San Diego mental health or whatever with some kind of generic name. And they're like, who are these people? You know, they know it's, you know, it's Blair or it's Sam or it's, or it's Ben or whoever. I'm going to see Ben. You know, I'm going to see Joe. I already met this person. It's much more of a likelihood that they'll actually show up if that bridge is there. And so that would be the next best thing, possibly putting some resources behind who is there, who is in the community, and can I bring them in at some point? Invite them to one of your classes, to your yoga classes, you know? So. Thank you. And I just, I see the vision of, you know, if you have a, if you're working with a program inside, can you develop an open, free community class outside as right. well? Right. It's like, can you work within both systems? And so that can even provide support for families of incarcerated people. Right. Like how, how can you 
continue to create a, a net of support is what I, I hear you saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. I also want to give you the opportunity to speak to anything that hasn't been said. Um, no, I'm, I'm honored and grateful to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity and, you know, your organization does really great work. So it's, it's great to partner with you. I would just say a quick plug for my professional training organization. Anybody who's watching this recording or is on the call, go to centerforadolescentstudies.com. We have something called the free resilience community tech for helping professionals, helping professional being Folks, you know, you all qualify for that. Um, and we do one live call like this a month on Zoom for different topics and one live weekly meditation as a community just for where we hop on for 10 to 15 minutes. I lead a meditation. We don't talk. We just bring the vibrations up and elevate, try to do our best to elevate human consciousness and start our week off. Uh, and there's a bunch of free self-paced courses there too. So I have the course where I'm talking about deep listening and self skillful self-disclosure. Um, there's about, I think there's three or four self-paced free courses that if you sign up for community, you'll get access to all of that. For the free community, you'll get access to all of that. So, um, so I just want to encourage you to do that and continue. We've talked about connection and relationship as a core value. That's part of what that community is about, is creating connection, developing relationship with fellow like-minded folks and, and helping us continue to be together in this work, which as we know, is very rewarding, but sometimes could be super challenging, you know? Thank you. And again, that is the uh, Center for Adolescent Studies dot com. And this is Dr. Sam Himmelstein. Thank you so, so much for being here with us today. It was an absolute honor. And we're just so looking forward to continuing to build with you. Thank you. Absolutely. I look forward to the next one. Keep me in mind. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Yeah, Bye. You too. Bye.